my coffee is a lot different than your coffee. Oh, yeah. So I have obviously coffee, which is um, my um, favorite brand that is French um, press. But I have colostrum in it. I have tallow in it. I have two egg yolks in it. And it is scrumptious. Oh, I'm going to have to try that. I love that coffee can be an avenue for so many different medicinal things, too. So It's amazing. Uh, yeah, some people don't like coffee. I, I like coffee. Oh, I drink I it um, a little bit every morning, and I certainly don't condemn it at all. So I'm good with that. Yes, well, I'm a fellow coffee lover, so you're in good you're in good company. <laughs> Perfect. Well, welcome to the Get Fit with Jodell podcast. I am, as usual, Jodell, and this next guest you've already heard him talk a little bit has such an unbelievable and inspiring story to the point where I had to interview him because many of my clients and listeners are actually dealing with the cancer diagnosis, and yet cancer doesn't have to be scary as mainstream makes it out to be. Rather, it actually could be manageable and still allow you to live a productive long life if approached properly. Uh, not that I'm a big fan of statistics, but this one actually uh, I do see transpiring because of how many people are contacting me for help with their cancer diagnosis. In the U.S., one in two women and one in three men will develop cancer in their lifetime. And in uh, one in two men and, and women will be diagnosed according to the British Journal of Cancer in the UK. So this is why I think it's important to bring on Dr. Alvin Dannenberg to bring hope as well as suggestions to all of us, but specifically talking with regards to cancer, we can, what we can benefit when it comes to living with cancer and being a cancer survivor. Um, so Dr. Dannenberg is a thriving periodontist, a certified functional medicine practitioner. He's also chair to the International Academy of Biological Dentistry and Medicine, and even developed a course for the board that certifies dentists as certified biological nutritional dental professionals. Say that five times fast. <laughs> he published numerous, he's published numerous books. His newest one, which is called Eat As If Your Life Depends On It, which I love that title. And his blogs are awe-inspiring as well as well thought out and if you like to read blogs I highly recommend his blog post so after a terminal and incurable cancer diagnosis Dr. Dannenberg developed a plan that evolved into his unconventional cancer protocols which you can find on his website which combines in-depth research of ancestral nutrition and lifestyle changes and his combined knowledge of 44 years as a periodontist so I love I love your work Dr. Dannenberg, and thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Well, you are awesome. Just call me Al, by the way. And uh, <laughs> I, I could not have written a better introduction. So that is fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, it was an honor to do it because you have inspired me. As as many people know, I got into nutrition because I lost my mom to cancer. So I love to work with people that have had a cancer diagnosis because I want to take the fear and the stigma out of it and the victim mentality and just rephrase it to look more like, okay, this is just some, this is a symptom that your body is giving you that something's out of balance, which is really seems to be what happened to you. You realized that something was out of balance and you made a lot of different shifts in the direction of putting your body back in balance. So I'd love you if, if you could briefly take us through your story because it is incredible incredible and just it, we're able to see how you got to where you are today to come up with these unconventional cancer protocols. 
Um, it's my pleasure. So I'm 75 years old. So I don't know how far back you really want to go, but we can go as far back as you want. Um, first of all, I want to tell anybody and everybody, I do not have a cure for cancer. I am not in remission. I do have active cancer. I have bone marrow cancer. It is incurable, and I'll go through that a little bit. But like you said, I've developed some concepts, not created, but put together a whole bunch of dots to come together with something coherent that can support my immune system, which is really everything for anybody to um, be aware of to heal their body from anything and everything. So here I go. I'm When I was 71 years old, um, 2018, um, at that point, I was thinking I was really a healthy guy. Um, I would consider myself the senior poster boy for health. And I was lecturing around the country and doing stuff about nutrition and actively practicing periodontics, which is uh, a specialty of dentistry that deals with gum disease. And I was asked to speak at the Paleo FX meeting in April 2018. And I went, I have, I live in Charleston, South Carolina. The meeting was in Austin, te Texas. I have to fly through Atlanta. I'm in connecting from plane to plane. I always walk from plane to plane if I can, because I just like the exercise. So I carry a bag on my shoulder, my right shoulder, nothing you know unusual about that but all of a sudden my shoulder was just hurting and when i got to the meeting i did my speed my spiel and got back home and the pain continued in my right shoulder then it went to my back then eventually went to my sternum area and it was even difficult to take deep breaths so i i'm kind of hard-headed i figure it's time to see my doc so this is a, a physician i've seen for 20 30 plus years I go to see him and he says, yeah, obviously there's something wrong. Let's do some blood tests. He did the blood tests, all the blood work, which was standard blood work came back normal, but he did a C-reactive protein, which is one of the biomarkers for inflammation in the body. And it was significantly high. In the, in the past, my uh, CRP, um, high sensitivity CRP, C-reactive protein was below 0 0.5, which was very good. And this was, up into the 5.0, 6.0 range, significantly elevated. And he said, let's, let's do an MRI and figure out what's going on. So we do an MRI, and then he calls me with the results. Now, at first, he tries to be very funny, and he says, you know, did somebody beat you up? Did you fall down some steps? I said, of course I didn't. I think I just tore a rotator cuff um, um, muscle or something in my shoulder. And he gets very serious and he says, I think you have either multiple myeloma, lymphoma, or leukemia. Wow, these are three cancers. Here is a healthy guy who I thought just pulled a muscle or a ligament. And he tells me the only three things he's thinking of is one of these types of cancer. It blows your mind. So he immediately gets me an appointment with an oncologist whom I've never met before, and he still is my oncologist. Met him, conventional oncologist. He looks at me, does a whole bunch of tests before. He sees me and comes up with a diagnosis, which very specifically is IgG, I'm, I'm sorry, IgA, kappa light chain multiple myeloma, which is a bone marrow cancer, 
with severe lytic lesions or holes throughout my entire skeleton. So my skeleton, my bones are literally being eroded internally and it's developing fragility, just like a person with severe osteoporosis. So what I was dealing with was a broken rib that was pressing around my lung. And that was why I could hardly breathe without pain. His immediate concern is I needed to do chemotherapy the next day. Um, and I said, well, you're telling me I have incurable bone marrow cancer. Why would I even consider um, chemotherapy? Because it's just going to destroy my immune system and I can't be cured anyhow. And he said, well, if you do the chemotherapy, you'll go into remission and you'll feel good for a while. But after a period of time, the chemo is not going to work anymore. We're going to need to do something else more, more caustic. And I wasn't a good candidate for stem cells for one reason or another. And for the most part, eventually none of the chemotherapy would work as we know it today. And I would die from multiple myeloma or the complications. So I'm thinking, okay, he's giving me a, a terrible story here. My life is going to end and he gives me three to six months to live. So my thought is after the shock and my wife is with me and my two adult kids, after the shock of understanding what I have, I'm asking him questions like, well, what, what, what's going to kill me? If, if nothing is going to work, how does a person with multiple myeloma die? And he said that either I develop anemia because all the blood cells are just going crazy and, and I could bleed internally and die, or I could develop a simple infection that turns into a much severe, more severe infection because my immune system is all compromised and I can't fight the infection and I die from that or kidney failure. And those would be the three main reasons. Again, none of which are pleasant, but I'm very inquisitive to figure out, well, what's the worst case scenario? And I reject immediately the concept of doing chemotherapy. So I tell him, George, I'm just not going to do chemo. Obviously, if I'm going to die, and all these bad things are going to happen no matter what I do. Why would I start breaking down my overall resistance sure. and, and, and succumbing to that? So I said, I just need to do a lot of research. So I started to do some research to figure out, in essence, what I could do to improve my immune system. Okay, I'm, a, and I'm accepting the idea that this disease is not curable based on the standards of modern medicine today. So what can I do to support my body as best as I can to feel as good as I can, in other words, have a good quality life until I die? And so I'm going into a, a lot of different journals. You know, you can do a lot of research on the internet, define medical papers that are available that talk about alternative treatments for this, that, and the other. And I come up with some really, I think, great ideas. And I put them together to form my unconventional cancer protocols. However, I have tweaked them significantly since September of 2018 when I was diagnosed and given the prognosis of three to six months to live. By the way, they were wrong <laughs> because it's a long, long time after three to six months to live. It's almost five years now. So 
in essence, I was doing, looking at diet, I was looking at helping my gut microbiome, I was looking at good sleep, emotional stress control, um, exercise, not too much, not too little, those obvious things that everybody talks about, okay, you need to do, but no one really knows how to do it. So, so I'm trying to put all these together, and that's how I come up with my unconventional cancer protocols. And I actually did quite well from September of 2018 until August of 2019. And my doctor was, my oncologist was kind of surprised, and that, that was great. And I wasn't losing weight, and nothing was getting worse, but nothing was getting better. I just felt good. But I knew one of the things that I, that I had to be aware of, and that is I had the potential to break bones very, very easily. Even though I knew that, I didn't understand what that really, really meant. So here I am in August of 2019, a year or so after my diagnosis, I'm standing in my bathroom brushing and flossing my teeth. And, you know, I think I know how to do that, being a periodontist. I'm doing that and I do that all the time. So I'm standing, you can picture this, I'm standing in my bathroom, looking at myself in the mirror, and then I turn to the left, maybe 90 degrees, twist my body to the left to throw the dental floss away in a trash can. So when I turn my body to the left, my right femur snaps in half and I crash to the floor. Obviously, you're standing on two legs, all of a sudden one's not there your balance is gone and I crash to the floor, break a couple more ribs and fracture my right humerus in half also. I'm lying on the floor, not feeling too good, actually screaming and yelling. My wife comes in, she sees what's happening. She calls EMS. And in my mind, I know I've done some severe damage because I can see my arm and my leg are in positions that I could never bend them. Obviously they've been fractured. And so I knew now it was an, a year after my diagnosis and prognosis. So I've lived more than six months beyond my theoretical di prognosis, and I'm ready to die. And I want to die because from this point on, I could see the quality of my life really going downhill. All the patients that I've seen in the past, for example, that have ha fr fractured hip, um, their hips do very, very poorly and, and die soon after. So I knew this was not a good thing. So I get to the hospital, they fix my right femur because I could bleed to death because the femoral artery is going to be uh, severed. So they fix my right femur. They don't do anything with my right arm and nothing with the ribs. And they put me in hospice to die. So I'm in hospice, literally to die in a hospice hospital. And this is a time I don't know how long this story you want to uh, linger on, but this is a time when there is a hurricane literally coming to Charleston, South Carolina, and that hurricane is moving very, very slowly with 187 mile an hour winds, and it's threatening the hospital area, and they're ordered, the hospital is ordered to evacuate all their patients. They don't know where to send me. My wife is a nurse. We decide, or she decides to send me home um, I'll still be in hospice, but I go home. My wife at that, at that point really starts to give me some tough love. And she basically says, look, you've done all these cancer protocols. Um, you've done well. This is a, a really big setback, but let me 
help you. Let's get a physical therapist in. Let's try to get you out of bed, get you off of a catheter. Let's see what we can do. And actually, that worked. And eventually, within a few weeks, and now this is, like I said, August of 2019, in a few weeks, I was able to sit up in bed, starting to walk with a walker, and I'm really feeling good. And I revoke hospice, which is rather unusual, um, and see my oncologist in October 2019, and he's shocked that I'm still alive. But I'm alive. So we do some other things. I never... I continue not to do any chemo. Um, one of the things I did was some immunotherapy to kill some of the malignant plasma cells that are my cancer. Um, but other than that, I'm going back to my unconventional cancer protocols. And I did quite well. And here I am. Now, along the way, certain things have happened. My body has weakened. I've got covid Actually, I had COVID maybe two or three times. I've survived, obviously, very well from it. But my body, because I have multiple myeloma, which is a cancer of the plasma cells, which creates antibodies to antigens, cannot pr produce healthy antibodies. So if I got a virus and my immune system was compromised, it could very well be that the antibodies that were produced were destroying my bone internally even more, which is what happened. And I had more bone fractures on and on and on. But whatever was happening, I still maintained as good or as high a quality of my immune system as I as was possible. And I'm doing quite well. So here I am. That's my wow. story. I love that. I, I mean, you are the classic, like not a victim of cancer, but you're of you're of the survivor mentality. And that's where I want people to draw from this podcast is that you don't have to be a victim of cancer. You don't have to be um, sad about it. You can actually use it as a stepping stone to further your health. And you can even manage good health in the midst of still having cancer. That's what you're proving to everybody listening to this. Like you have well, that, you're you're absolutely correct and i will i want to emphasize the victim idea okay. because when you become a victim uh and i've gotten very depressed at times i mean i'm human so i get very depressed at times but if you are a victim you are emotionally drained and emotional stress is a huge factor in any and every chronic disease, including cancer. So if you are, sometimes some people suggest that cancer is directly related to years of emotional trauma. Um, and, and I totally agree with that. And I, and I understand that if you are of the opinion that you are now a victim of cancer, you're only feeding that other negative aspect. And when you do, create internal emotional stress your cortisol levels are going up you're damaging your gut microbiome which you don't realize you're doing which is a huge factor in the progression of systemic chronic inflammation which is a precursor to all chronic diseases as well as cancer so that has to be understood you just can't turn it on or off like an electric light switch it just doesn't work that way you do have to have some help 
not necessarily professional help, but somebody like a very concerned wife or partner who gives you some really tough love to make your eyes open up to the fact that you're not a victim. You can always improve your situation. We're all going to die. What's the big deal? The, the question is, can you create a quality of life going forward until that end point is there? And I think that, in my opinion, that's what I want to do. Um, it makes my life fulfilling. And the number of years just doesn't mean anything. I love that. I wish my mom would have heard that years ago because she went from just having this, oh, I have acid reflux a lot, or I'm having a lot of acid stomach to going and other, otherwise completely fine to going to a doctor who says, well, you have stomach cancer. And then from that point on, it was like her whole demeanor just changed. Like it was the victim. It was, right. I'm, I'm sick. Oh, I feel everything. And really, I think it's the, the diagnosis that people get sick from, not necessarily the cancer if they allow the diagnosis to make them ill and to follow the trends that they've heard in other cancers, oh, this is what's going to happen to me and this is how I'm going to feel. But what if it's just a symptom? And what if it's something that if you do what you did and look at it from the standpoint of what can I do for my body now? How can I create resilience now that I know that there's a symptom going on of cancer? Do you agree with that? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And part of the problem is the medical profession that is only geared to treating the manifestation of the disease with chemicals yeah. that historically have not worked at all. And when they do work, they have some severe side effects. Some of the side effects from the medications are worse than the cancer itself. So... You have to be open-minded enough to look around the medical community beyond the, the conventional allopathic medical community and see what people are doing, how they're living their life, what research supports it. And, and that's another important thing. There are a lot of, I would just say, well, basically quacks out there that are giving impressions that if you take this supplement, you are going to cure yourself of cancer or another crazy treatment that's never been proven yet costs $10,000, um, and then you're gonna cure yourself of cancer. It just doesn't work that way. No, absolutely. And what, in your opinion, in your professional opinion, and maybe seeing the trends of cancer rise just in the past few years, what do you think is the underlying reason that cancer has come up? Do you have an opinion on that? Oh, absolutely. Our diet yeah. and our unhealthy guts. If I were to say two factors that are in that you have total control over, um, would be the diet and the health of the gut microbiome, this garden of bacteria in your gut, if they are ideal, and ideal means nutrients that are bioavailable, a good diverse number of bacteria that crowds out unhealthy bacteria and in your gut, and if those things are ideal, you have solved the mystery of chronic disease, which 
cancer is one and gum disease is one. I can tell you that periodontal disease doesn't start in the mouth not, most of the time. It starts in the gut. And the gut's bacterial composition that is compromised creates a leakage of toxic elements into the bloodstream. The immune system becomes somewhat dysfunctional and that change in the bloodstream creates the change in the bacteria in the mouth creating gum disease. You didn't get gum disease by itself. Um, you got gum disease because you have what's called gut dysbiosis. Now there are situations where you can get gum disease because of a broken filling, a bad tooth for one for one reason or another, something traumatic in the mouth. But for the most part, it's the gut. The gut starts the problem, and that's true for all chronic disease. The mouth is periodontal disease, tooth decay are chronic diseases. Cancer is chronic disease, but Alzheimer's is a chronic disease. Parkinson's is a chronic disease. All of these diseases emanate in one way or another from gut dysbiosis. Mm -hmm. No, that answers my question completely because I, I wanted to see the link between the teeth and the gums um, or the teeth and the gut as well. And, but we're, I guess my question was, is it the chicken or the egg? Like, is it the gut dysbiosis great. or is it the mouth dysbiosis that creates the gut? Yeah, it's a great question. If you talk to a lot of biological dentists, they would say it starts in the mouth and it gets into the gut. 95% um, of the time, that's not the case. Because when you swallow, a lot of people would think, okay, you have infection in the mouth, you swallow the infection, it gets into your gut and it causes gut dysbiosis. Well, one of the things that we have as humans is a protective stomach that has extreme acidity that literally kills microbes for the most part, before they get into the gut or into the intestines. So the bacteria in the mouth being swallowed doesn't generally create damage to the gut because the bacteria is killed in the stomach acid. Unless you have a stomach issue and your low acid uh, problems, that, that's a different medical problem. But still, it generally doesn't work that way. It starts in the gut. Now, once the infection is in the gut, gut dysbiosis, and you have what's called a leaky gut, and then it gets into the mouth, and the mouth, because of its own population of bacteria, become pathogenic and overgrown with very virulent species, and then this infection gets under the gum and into the jawbone, now you have two nidises of infection, two sources of infection. If you just stop the infection in the gut, you don't treat the mouth at this point. If you only stop the infection in the mouth, you don't treat the, the gut at that point. You have to treat both concurrently. The problem is very few practitioners understand to treat both of them concurrently. Right. They don't understand the relationship, which is amazing to me, but it's the way it is right now. It's getting to be a little more understandable, but most biological dentists still see the mouth as this big infectious area that they have to kill the bacteria. And that's not the case. Both the gut and the mouth have to be treated. And you don't want to just kill bacteria because it's impossible 
to just kill pathogenic bacteria. When you try to kill pathogenic bacteria, you're also killing the good guys. So you're continuing to disturb the balance. You have to create new balance in the gut and new balance in the mouth. And there are ways to do it that are not terribly invasive, but it has to be done. And what about like the, like you mentioned, the over-sterilization, because I feel like that's part of the reason why we're seeing an uptick in so many things like COVID and flus and stuff like that. Like I think over the years, over the past couple of years dealing with COVID with hand sanitizers and sterilizing everything and perhaps people using a lot of products to sterilize their mouth or their nose or even their digestive tract. Um, do we, Is that a big issue as far as like you said? Absolutely. Killing it's off down- the you're almost becoming too sterile. Yep, that's true. You need the bacteria. You need the microbes. We have 38 trillion microbes mainly living in our gut. We only have 30 trillion human cells. So if you look at the numbers, we're more bacterial or foreign living structures than human structures. So these bacterial or microbial communities, they're not just bacteria, they're viruses and, and a variety of other fungi and a variety of other things. They serve a purpose, but their purpose is to be in a state of balance or homeostasis. And they provide a lot of important biologically active chemicals to heal the gut, help the gut, signal the immune system. There's so many things that are working in your favor when you have a healthy gut microbiome. When you sterilize it, you will kill yourself. And like you're talking about, for example, with COVID, it has been the conception that um, you need to use alcohol rinses on your hands continuously to kill the viruses. Well, number one, for control of COVID, all you have to do is wash with your uh, a little bit of soap and water, and that's all that's necessary. The other thing is, when you do these very active antimicrobial maneuvers, you're destroying the healthy microbiome in your hands. And a lot of people start to get red, chapped fingers, and it's because they're stripping the oils away, but they're also stripping the natural microbiome away. And your body is reacting to that because that that microbiome is protective. So we don't want to destroy or sterilize any part of our body. We need to just enhance the natural community of microbiome. And your microbiome in your gut is as unique to you as your fingerprint. So not another person's healthy gut is necessarily going to be healthy for you. And we have to understand that. We have to rebuild and sometimes it's impossible, but attempt to rebuild your natural gut environment. And there are ways to try to do that. Yeah, let's bring some of those out. Like, what are some natural ways that people can rebuild both their mouth microbiome as well as their gut microbiome? Well, first of all, you have to eat the right foods. You have to eat the foods that are nutritious, nutrient-dense, meaning many, many nutrients per calorie of food. You have to eat these kinds of foods, but also these nutrients have to be bioavailable, meaning that they can easily be absorbed into your body. If you're eating foods that have other chemicals combined in the foods that are binding to these natural nutrients, 
and they you just excrete them when you eat, they're not very healthy. And basically, an animal-based diet provide if you're eating a true animal-based diet, we can get into that um, definition in a moment, but if you're eating a truly animal-based diet, you're going to get practically every nutrient your body needs in a bioavailable form. But if you're eating an animal-based diet, but you're supplementing with synthetic supplements that are harmful for the gut, if you're eating certain plants that have what's called anti-nutrients that literally are chemicals that can damage the gut microbiome. You're trying to help your gut and destroy your gut at the same time. That makes no sense whatsoever. So you have to have a balance of a healthy gut microbiome fed by a healthy bioavailable nutrient-dense source, which would be an animal-based source. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to come back to the animal base, but I wanted to get your thoughts too on when it comes to gut health. You know, you hear a lot about gluten free and how gluten can damage the gut. Are you a believer that gluten is also an issue when it comes to gut health? Absolutely. There is no human being that can tolerate gluten because we don't have the <laughs> enzyme. We don't have the enzymes. We've never evolved. Our bodies have never evolved to digest gluten. Gluten is a modern food. It never was a food that we were eating on a regular basis. And gluten only breaks down to some very complex peptides, but it never breaks down to its basic amino acids. And so gluten, um, which breaks down to gliadin, which is one of these unhealthy peptides, irritates the gut lining and creates openings that are basically colloquially known as a, a leaky gut. It happens in every human being. The question is, how often does it happen and how big of these gaps um, that are forming between the cells literally existing so that junk from your gut pours into your bloodstream that should never be there. And then the vicious cycle begins where the immune system gets dysfunctional, you create chronic disease, autoimmune disease, gum disease, cancer, all of these things happen. So you have to have a healthy gut. Gluten is not a healthy food complement to the body. Absolutely. Now, what about as far as like if we're restoring the microbiome of the mouth and the gut, do you feel that probiotics and also probiotic rich food, like a lot of people love their fermented vegetables and things like that. What do you think about those? Well, I'm not big on the vegetable part. So that's where we can talk about an animal-based diet. But fermented vegetables would have some benefit. But I just, I just want to remind you that these wonderful lactobacillus and bifidobacteria species that are fermenting the wonderful vegetables that you think you're eating, they're creating chemicals called metabolites, which are beneficial but these bacteria are killed in the stomach acid. So they're not repopulating the, the gut for the most part. Probiotics, especially spore-based probiotics, which are resistant to stomach acid, can support and help the gut microbiome. But if you have a leaky gut and all of a sudden you're starting to take probiotics that start to kill off maybe um, some pathogenic species, you could kill too much too quickly and develop a lot of GI or gut symptoms that are very uncomfortable. So you have to be 
more um, logical in your approach. One of the things you have to try to do is to bind in your gut what's called lipopolysaccharides, yeah. which is the cell wall of gram-negative bacteria that live in your gut normally. And you have lots of poly, uh, lipo, uh, uh, polysaccharides, LPS, in your gut all the time. And you defecate them, and that's not a problem. But you have, if you have a leaky gut, damage to the gut membrane, um, that, that LPS can leak into the bloodstream. You need to try to bind those, connect them with other um, immunoglobulins, for example. And because the molecule is so big, it doesn't leak into the bloodstream and you can defecate them out. In addition, you need to heal that leaky gut. Now, when you're healing the epithelial barrier and you're binding to LPS that is so damaging to the blood system, then you can start repopulating the healthy gut microbiome by eating nutrient-dense foods, which would be an animal-based diet, eliminating anti-nutrient chemicals that are in many of the plants that are damaging the gut microbiome, and avoid other toxic elements like in supplements that you take. Because if you look at a supplement jar that you're buying off the shelf and you read the other ingredients, you'll see a variety of preservatives and emulsifiers in that product, which have been proven without a doubt to be damaging to the gut microbiome. I have a client who's taking about 120 capsules a day of supplements. And the damage she is creating to the gut far outweighs the potential benefit of these supplements that are synthetic anyhow. So you have to do a number of things to start to rebuild the gut. Get the LPS bind, binding to something that doesn't leak into the bloodstream, heal the gut lining, start to repopulate the gut microbiome with your own healthy species, and spore-based probiotics do a very good job because it allows your own microbiome to grow bigger and, and more diverse, and eat the nutrient-dense foods that supply fuel for all of this to happen properly and get absorbed by your body. And of course, remove anything that is damaging or toxic. It sounds like a lot, but it really is a simple process if you understand the steps. No, and I love that there are steps. Like a lot of people um, will want to just do everything all at once. But like you said, you really need to repair the leaky gut before bringing the probiotics in or you're going to have issues based on the probiotics not staying where they need to be. And now as far as probiotics, are you of the mindset that bifido, that bifido bacteria is really important? Because I've seen a lot of guts transform with just that really good bifido since that's what we start out life with. When we come down the water slide when we're born and we get breastfed, we should get what 70 percent of our gut should be made up of bifido you are absolutely correct that you want the bifido bacteria lactobacillus bacteria in your gut the question is how do you get it there if it's going to be killed in the stomach acid mm. so you do have a, a supply of that in your gut but the numbers may be very very small and insignificant the question is how do you get them to grow in your gut so to do that, um, spore-based probiotics, like I said, and everything else gives your gut microbiome an opportunity to regrow. The other thing that's important is that um, you don't want 
you don't want to overdo something before the rest of the repair has been done, like you said. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to use the spore-based probiotics, um, you're not going to get the, the variety of gut bacteria to grow properly because there's too much damaged LPS, leakage of the gut, uh, to deal with. You certainly can benefit from lactobacillus and bifidobacteria's metabolites, the chemicals they produce when you eat them, because they are not resistant to the stomach acid. They get into the gut and they do provide a lot of nutrients that are necessary for the gut, but they don't cause the bacteria to grow better because that bacterium is now dead. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Is there certain foods that would feed those good commensal bacteria like the bifido we already have inside us that you recommend? Well, that's a, a very good controversial subject because most people that are into nutrition, certainly plant-based people, would say fiber is critical because the fiber that you eat that is not digested um, you, the gut microbiome can then ferment and create short-chain fatty acids and, and many, many other bioactive chemicals to support the gut microbiome, the epithelial barrier, and overall health. And that is true to a certain extent. But there also is some very exciting research that shows if you're on an animal-based diet, meaning not eating plants, but eating the right animals and all of their um, nutrient-based foods, nose to tail, including organs and cartilage and, and blood and fat and things like you're, you're not necessarily, as a Western society individual, you're not used to, but if you're eating this in one way or another, it supplies amino acids that the, the gut microbiome can ferment into the short-chain fatty acids, just like fiber. And so there are cultures, the early Eskimos that were basically 98, 95, 98% animal-based had no problems with their gut microbiome and they didn't have chronic disease. Today they do because they've become westernized and eating, you know, popcorn and pizza and everything else. So they're, they're not eating that original diet. But our primal societies that were eating an animal-based diet primarily didn't have these issues. They also didn't have gum disease or tooth decay, which is interesting. They didn't have cancer. Now, yeah, maybe occasionally here or there for a variety of reasons, but none of the prevalence of these diseases today existed in primal societies in the past or primal societies that are existing today, like the Maasai and the Hadza um, are eating basically animal-based diets. They're not... Um, they're not eating a westernized diet, and they don't have these chronic diseases or gut dysbiosis. Mm. And they're not eating the fiber that theoretically is necessary to maintain a healthy gut. So fiber does help if you're eating those foods, but it hinders your body because fiber can be irritating to the gut lining, as well as the other anti-nutrients in the plants that could be damaging the gut microbiome. So you're benefiting the gut microbiome in one way and you're damaging it in another way. In my opinion, do what our genetic code has designed 
our eating lifestyle to be. And that is, we are, we have evolved to be animal-based eaters with some plants, but primarily an animal-based eater. And have you found, um, maybe in the research or something, maybe something I haven't seen, that meat-based or animal-based feeds any of those bacteria, the good ones we were talking about? Is there any truth to that as far as, like, yeah. animal-based yeah, like I said, help? Yeah. yeah, like I said, that the amino acids that are um, the proteins that are basically bro- broken down into their basic structure, which is amino acids, um, can be fermented by the gut microbiome to create short chain fatty acids as are necessary to support a healthy gut microbiome, just like they ferment fiber when fiber is available. We, we're very adaptable. The problem is we don't like toxicity that accumulates in our body. So if you're going to eat a pizza, you're not going to die next week or get cancer next week. If you eat an ice cream cone today, you're not going to get tooth decay next week. But I assure you, if you're going to suck on candy and eat ice cream cones and chocolate cake every day, um, you're going to have some gum disease and gut dysbiosis in time. And all of a sudden, you're going to get sick. And you're going to say, well, all of a sudden, this is happening. Well, no, it's been happening for the last 10 or 20 years. The problem is the accumulation of the toxicity is now manifesting to a real disease. And you just can't take a pill take it away you have to do a lot of other things to get healthier yeah and i love a carnivore or meat-based approach for someone with really bad gut issues because it's so easy to digest and the, yes. the body utilizes all the amino acids so i have really used a protocol where i'll just have them eat meat for a certain length of time exclusively to really calm down any sort of gut damage another question i had was what about the rise in SIBO the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth have you seen that correlated to you know any certain thing people are doing in their lifestyle that's really creating this this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or fungal overgrowth? One of the things that is interesting is that the practitioners that treat SIBO never, ever, ever look at the mouth as a source of infection. And the mouth is a source of infection not because you swallow the bacteria, which some people, like I said, think that's the case and you get infection from that, but the infection and inflammatory elements get into the gut in a variety of ways. It can get into the bone structure of the jaw, travel through capillaries into the rest of the bloodstream, gets into the lymph tissue in the bone of the jaw, and eventually dumps into the um, uh, circulatory system. It can actually travel the nerve sheath. There are lots of nerves throughout your body, little little canals with, with nerves and coating called a myelin sheath, almost like an electric wire with a plastic coating on the outside. That plastic coating is like a myelin sheath around a nerve. The bacteria, remnants, and inflammatory cytokines can literally slide along this canal, never even getting into the bloodstream, get, but get transported to other parts of the body. And then this inflammatory com- composition can get in between layers of tissue that go to other parts of the body. Some of the dental meridians, the Eastern philosophy, may be 
actually related to this inflammatory reaction getting between the layers of tissues spreading throughout the body and not getting into, per se, the GI tract by swallowing. So all of this infection in the mouth, like an abscess tooth or tooth that was extracted but not properly extracted, and there's residual infection in the bone that's not causing pain or swelling, but it's leaking into the bloodstream or leaking into the tissues, like I just explained, can be a factor, a huge factor in SIBO, as well as all these other chronic diseases. So the mouth has to be identified to be healthy, and if it's not healthy, it needs to be treated. Of course, if you're eating the wrong stuff and you're feeding the the healthy bacteria with the stuff that's going to kill a lot of good guys off, you're going to get an overgrowth, possibly creating SIBO. And then again, there are other conventional medical problems where bacteria in the gut back up into the small intestine because of the, the valve system is damaged and or there is a diverticulitis, there's damage to the epithelial barriers of the intestine. There are a host of other medical issues that can activate this small growth of um, bacteria in, in the small intestine. Oh, that's so good to hear because there's so many people struggling with that. So I hope they're listening to this going, okay, maybe I need to take a look at what's going on in my mouth. So as we focus more yeah. now on the mouth, I have a few question, more questions about the teeth. I want to circle back to where we started the, the podcast with coffee. So it's nice to see a, a periodontist, a dentist that is drinking his coffee. Is coffee detrimental to the teeth and the gut? Or is that something that can actually benefit us if it's done properly? Well, there are studies that show that coffee has beneficial factors in it. But one of the things about coffee is it could be very acid, very acidic. If you are drinking a liquid that is very acidic and you're drinking it continuously and your mouth stays very acid for a long period of time, you're going to get demineralization of the tooth structure, which is basically tooth decay. And that's also going to not be good for certain bacteria in the mouth. So the bacteria in the mouth want to live in a relatively neutral environment of, of a, 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 a pH. And if you're very acid, that's not a good thing. So what can you do about that? Well, what I do with my coffee, which I didn't mention to you in the beginning, is I put maybe an eighth of a teaspoon of baking soda in my coffee when I'm making it with a French press. And the baking soda neutralizes the acidity. So my coffee is almost a neutral 7.0, um, which is great. You don't taste it. You just don't have the acid in the coffee. And it doesn't irritate the gut or anything else. So um, I'm not sure how much research has been done in that regard, but I know that it's a factor. So it is something that I do personally. I don't have a problem with coffee. There are some real big people that have a huge platform in the carnivore world that will tell you coffee is poison. And um, I'm not so sure that that's the case. Now, coffee that is not uh, organically grown, coffee that has um, um, myco, 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 uh, toxic elements in it, um, um, mold issues, that could be uh, an issue with coffee beans. Um, 
you have to be aware of. You have to have high quality, organically grown coffee. Um, those things are a given. So you have to have at least good, healthy coffee. But any and every cup of coffee that I drink is what I make. Um, I don't buy coffee outside generally. I make it with a little bit of baking soda to take that acidity down. You can test it. You can take a pH strip that measures the, the different um, acidity slightly below and slightly above the neutral zone. And you will see that if you take coffee by itself, it is highly acidic. And when you put a little bit of baking soda in, then it comes back to a relatively normal range. I'm totally going to do that. That's the first time I've ever heard somebody putting baking soda in their French press with their grounds. How much are you putting in there? Yeah, so I I make two cups of coffee at a, at a time. I don't drink more than two cups. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm using, let, let's say, 16 ounces of water. I use the two scoops. Uh, so that would be four tablespoons of ground coffee in the French press. And I would add, I would say, an eighth of a teaspoon to a quarter of a teaspoon of baking soda. I just eyeball it and just sprinkle it in. I also put a little bit of Himalayan salt in it. Yeah, just I for do some trace minerals. Myself, but I have not tried the baking soda, so I'm going to do Try that. Try it. I, I like uh, Purity Coffee. It's a mycotoxin organic free, uh, or, or, it's mycotoxin free organic coffee. And so I'll put a link to that in the show notes. What brand do you yeah, like? Yeah, try that. There is, oh, gee. Um, Cubana, I think, is oh, yeah. the coffee that I drink. I like the flavor. It is organic and mycotoxin-free. They say, who knows? I have no idea what they're doing to test it, but I'm not and have never had a problem. But again, I always use the um, baking soda. Awesome. Now, not baking powder. I'm talking right. about just baking soda. Yes, absolutely. Now, going back to teeth, what are your thoughts on certain ingredients that are in different teeth products like you mentioned that our teeth can become demineralized and there's a, a ingredient out there called hydroxyapatite that are in a lot of toothpaste can we yeah. actually remineralize our teeth yes you can remineralize your teeth if you're eating healthy nutrient dense foods that have trace minerals the trace minerals get into the bloodstream a lot of it deposits into the uh, salivary glands it's in the saliva those elements of calcium and phosphorus are bathing your tooth 24 hours a day, seven days a week. As long as your dental plaque is healthy, by the way, dental plaque is healthy until it's not. You don't want to remove dental plaque. You just don't want to have unhealthy dental plaque. Then that mineral transport through the dental plaque into the root surface continuously will remineralize areas of the tooth that need to be remineralized. That being said, Hydroxyapatite is the natural bone structure that is very beneficial. Um, basically, ground bovine bone is hydroxyapatite. The problem is the majority of the toothpaste that use hydroxyapatite use not nanohydroxyapatite. Nanohydroxyapatite is made structurally so small that it penetrates the cell membranes of cells and can damage the nuclear membrane, which is where your DNA is. Now, there are studies that question the health and toxicity 
of nanoparticle anything. And so I am not a fan of nanoparticle hydroxyapatite. Now, there are what's called microcrystallized hydroxyapatite, and it goes by the letters MCHA, MCHA, and that is not damaging to the nuclear membrane, and that can remineralize the tooth, maybe not as efficiently as nanohydroxyapatite, but it doesn't have the toxicity of nanohydroxyapatite. Do you need to do that? No, you don't even need toothpaste. So you don't even have to worry about that. You can just simply brush your teeth correctly using a little bit of salt water. Now, I am actually on a scientific board of a toothpaste company called Revitin, which is a very, very excellent toothpaste. There's nothing in it that damages the gut uh, or the oral microbiome. So there are no chemicals that are going to damage anything and it allows natural remineralization. But do you need to have toothpaste to keep your mouth clean? Absolutely not. And now what about teeth sensitivity? Because I hear a lot of clients dealing with teeth sensitivity. Is this from a lot of that harsh brushing and harsh care? Yes, it okay. could be. Now, a lot of people utilize... Um, Activated charcoal in toothpaste. Activated charcoal is very abrasive. It does erode the enamel of the tooth. It can literally make teeth sensitive. And enamel that's eroded never will come back. You can't remineralize. You can't create new enamel. You can make it harder by hydroxyapatite, but you can't create the structure of the enamel um, once the enamel is gone. So activated charcoal can make teeth sensitive. Certain foods can make teeth sensitive. Eating a lot of acid foods that can demineralize the tooth because you're eating and drinking this acid, creating this acid environment for a long period of time. Um, calcium phosphates can harden the tooth. There have been some interesting studies where they, they the investigators had double-blind study with some youngsters who had sensitive teeth, yet they used milk and swished their mouth with milk, which has calcium and phosphorus, and it started to deposit into the roots of the teeth and decrease sensitivity. So there are natural ways to do that. Milk may or may not be a problem. We can always discuss that later, but um, that is a more natural way. But like I said, if you're eating a nutrient-dense diet, that has lots of trace minerals, electrolytes in the water that you're drinking. And you're eating foods that are not anti-nutrient in the sense that they absorb these minerals, uh, which they can do. That's a problem if you were eating foods that have these anti-nutrients. Those minerals can get into the bloodstream, get into the salivary glands, gets into your saliva, and naturally you will remineralize teeth. And as you remineralize teeth, you will decrease the sensitivity. Oh, wow. That is so cool to hear a dentist say that, that instead of swishing with like a Listerine, you could actually swish with. Milk. Oh, that is <laughs> the Listerine company would not like what I say, but that is the worst thing you can do on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Now, antimicrobial mouthwashes have their place, by the way. If you have an infection, you're being treated therapeutically by a good biological dentist. Um, and I say biological dentist, that, there's no specialty called biological dentistry, but a dentist that understands the integration of the mouth with the rest of the body. 
Um, if there is an infection that's being treated in the mouth and you use antimicrobial mouthwashes for a week or 10 days, maybe even two or three weeks, um, that's not a problem as long as you understand that you have to rebuild that healthy mouth microbiome. But if you don't understand that, and you're starting to use an antimicrobial mouthwash on a daily basis as a preventative, you are doing a lot of damage. Even though you may not have gum disease or tooth decay, the damage you're doing is systemic because that garden of bacteria in your mouth is no longer there and it's not protective in its way that it should be because you've destroyed that layer. Just like using an alcohol rinse on your hands six, seven, eight, ten times a day, you'd start to get red, chappy-type hands because you're destroying the natural oils of the skin as well as killing the entire microbiome. That's not a good thing. Oh, this is so cool to hear. I mean, you're just so refreshing to talk to. So we'll round we'll round it out here because I know I've had you for a long time. But another topic I wanted to touch on was something I ask a lot of my clients about EMFs, electromagnetic frequency. I heard you say in a podcast that you thought perhaps the radiation you were exposed to through all the x-rays and electric EMF associated with being a dentist could have been the reason behind your cancer. So how damaging is EMF on our tissue? Well, we're talking about degrees here so dirty electromagnetic fields that we're exposed to like if you're living in a house that is near high power voltage towers and there's a, a significant electromagnetic field that's all around you that's very damaging um there's some been some interesting studies with electromagnetic fields with rats and mice um for example i think the study was supported by nih um, several years ago, when I say several years ago, three, four years ago, um, where a telephone was placed in the cage of this, these rats and another study was in mice, S some of those rats uh, the, and, and uh, mice had the telephone turned on, which creates dirty electromagnetic fields um, for a period of eight hours, like a normal person might wear it or utilize it on their body, like a shirt pocket or whatever. And then the other animals had the the um, the phones, but they were turned off completely, so they didn't emit these electromagnetic fields. And over a period of year, a year, those that were in the experimental group that had the dirty electromagnetic fields being generated developed a significant number of lymphomas or cancer. Very, very interesting. How it translates to humans, I'm not so sure. You can't treat humans that way. You would be thrown in jail if you did that. So I'm not so sure, but I do have a feeling that dirty electromagnetic fields are not good. And I think that there are ways to neutralize that um, using pulse electromagnetic field therapy, but it has to be very quality-oriented pulse electromagnetic field therapy. The other question that you had, tell me about the other question again with the EMS. She said something well, else about how that. damaging on our tissue because I know you know our teeth are a tissue, our gut is a tissue, and we, we're typically holding these devices right near our gut or talking yeah. on a phone that's right near our jaw, full of this teeth tissue. So, oh, oh, okay, you were talking about my diagnosis. So, yes. when I was exposed to low dose ionizing radiation, which are dental x rays, it's not like you going to the dentist and getting a full mouth series of x rays 
maybe once a year or once every other year or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then you would be high, a high risk for cancer. That's not true. However, in a dental clinic, here I am a student, there are dental x-ray machines all over the place. We had 120 students. Every student shared, every four to six students shared one uh, x-ray machine. So there are machines going on and off all the time. In those days, these are the very early 1970s, late 1960s, I was not prepared, nor any dental student was prepared to monitor the radiation that they may have been exposed to. So I could be walking through the clinic day after day, and I did this for six years, and slowly accumulating this low-dose ionizing radiation, creating one plasma cell in my body, just one become malignant and then get go crazy and overgrow and then for decades later manifest into multiple myeloma and there's some studies that suggest that that's the way it happened so i don't want anybody to get scared and have their dentist not do x-rays to die, diagnose a dental problem because they think they're going to get cancer um, or some other damage to their body if they get a dental x-ray. That's not true, unless you're going to have dental x-rays done every day for six continuous years. That, that makes no sense. Yeah. But you can neutralize these dirty electromagnetic fields. And like you and I are looking at a computer screen, this is not the healthiest thing that you are doing. But it, does it really matter? If you're doing it infrequently, how significant is it? And if it is significant, can you neutralize the damage on a daily basis? And you can, and you can with pulse electromagnetic field therapy. It kind of neutralizes the damage that EMF does to individual cells. Okay, very cool. Um, so as we wrap up here, I have, man, I have so much more I wanted to ask you. So I'm de definitely going to have to have you back on because you are so fun to talk to. But Well, thank you. Yeah. What are so, just three things, the most critical recommendations? I know we've talked about a lot here, but if somebody's listening today, maybe they're wanting to prevent cancer or even they have cancer, what's the three most critical things that someone can do? Number one, you have to have a support group. Yeah. So that support group means emotional support. It could be your spouse. It could be a friend, um, whoever that is there for the betterment of you to help you through this emotionally, I think that's very critical. Your diet is absolutely critical and it needs to be a nutrient dense diet. And in everything that I've read and certainly that I've done personally, it has to be an animal based diet, not necessarily um, meat all the time. You have to eat meat, but you have to eat the organs, you have to eat the collagen, you have to eat these foods that have the symbiotic relationship of the nutrients uh, one um, supporting the other. And the other thing is to understand, I have to have four things, to understand the gut microbiome. And if you do have a gut issue, treat it. And I think at least 80 or 90% of the US population has a gut problem. Sure. And if you have any gum infection, if your gum bleeds at all in either one spot or another, infrequently but when you brush or floss you have gum disease and you need to be aware of that you can't be a little bit pregnant so you can't be a little bit infected if you have gum disease you have gum disease and it is getting into your blood system all day long and it needs to be addressed so 
You have to have a healthy diet. You have to have health gut microbiome. You have to have a healthy mouth. And you have to have a good support group to help you if you do have this terrible diagnosis that you think is terrible, a support group to support you when you in your days when you're down and out. And believe me, there are many days. Oh, yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. As long well, as you have somebody nature. to help you. Yeah. Grief yeah. is a lifelong process of all the different things we need to process. But like you said, it's definitely, we are social creatures. We need our good social system. We, we need that support, that direct support that's there any moment that you need it. Not Facebook, not Instagram, that live person that is your support yep. system. So. Yeah. You're right. No, that's awesome. Now, one one final question is my favorite quote is by Audrey Hepburn, and it says, I believe that every day should have at least one exquisite moment. So can I ask what would be your exquisite moment today? Or if it hasn't happened yet, maybe it's going to happen. What would that be? My My exquisite moment would be that I know what I'm doing for myself today is not going to harm me with toxicity in the future. So if, if I know that I have not introduced new toxicity in my body, I think that is critical. I think so too. That's very exquisite. So I agree. So let's talk, where can people find you? The, obviously they can work with you too. You take clients and also I do. where can they get your book? Um, so my book is available on Amazon. Eat as if your life depends on it. It's the most uh, recent book. Um, my website is drdannenberg.com. So it's D-R-D-A-N-E-N-B-E-R-G.com. I do, I sell nothing at all on right. my website. Yeah. The only thing that I do sell is my time for consultations. I do one-on-one -on -one consultations and also coaching programs. And I see people all over the world, not only talking about cancer, Although a lot of clients that I have do have cancer, they talk about their mouth, they talk about their gut, they talk about their diet. And all of this is so integrated. If you are talking about cancer, you need to be talking about the mouth and the gut and the diet. And if you're not doing that, if the practitioner that you're seeing is not integrating all of those factors, you're not getting a good source of information to heal your body. Absolutely. So the, I'll have all those links in the show notes so people can just click on them and reach out to you. And I myself might have to do a consult with you just to see from the <laughs> mouth perspective what's going on that we can improve because I'm always about improving. So but I haven't ever really dove into like my mouth and what's going on there. So well, you should definitely do that. Then. I will. Yes. And I know how to, who to reach out to, too. So <laughs> thank you, Dr. Al. I appreciate your time today. And uh, you're awesome. We'll have you back on for more questions. It's a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Have a great yeah. day. All right. I love how unique you are and that your needs and diet are as unique as your fingerprint. That's why not every diet in the world will work for you because you're special, okay? So as your nutritionist, I believe in your bio-individuality and it's my job to act as your nutrition detective and find the root of your issues and create a more optimized U2.0. So are you looking to ease some digestive distress or maybe dial in your sleep? 
What about lowering environmental stress that could be causing, you know, stuff like undue anxiety? What about food struggles and emotional connections to food? Or maybe you're simply suffering from diet confusion and not sure where to start to improve your health. That's where I come in. So let's set up a free 15-minute call to see if I'm right for you. That's right. All you're going to do is email me at getfitwithjodell at gmail.com. That's J-O-D-E-L-L-E. And let's just chat about you and see if we're a good match when it comes to getting you the results you've been waiting for. And no matter where you are, you could be in Asia, Brazil, Chicago, or somewhere in between, we can connect via Zoom or phone or any way you like to get you the results and your health once and for all. Let me be your guide and let me get you there. I'm feeling a little blue today, but in a good way, because I took my methylene blue, that is. Two of my favorite supplements for optimizing my mitochondria, those little energy factories in virtually every cell of our body, are a product called methylene blue and also magnesium. And both can be found really great sources at lifeblood.co, the most authentic and well-researched form of methylene blue and magnesium that I have found to date is the one carried by Lifeblood. We know magnesium is our calming mineral and responsible for over 800 different processes in the human body, helping with calming you for sleep, easing constipation, creating a better heartbeat, thwarting chocolate cravings and sugar cravings, and even easing leg cramps and spasms, plus much, much more. And I don't know where I'd be during the last three years, during a time when many around us were ill without my methylene blue to keep my cells' immunity going. Methylene blue is antiviral, antiparasitic, antimicrobial, and even helps combat candida overgrowth. You can get yourself my two favorite supplements by clicking the link in the show notes for Lifeblood and using my promo code JODELL, J-O-D-E-L-L-E, to save on your very own purchase of those two items or any of the wonderful products at Lifeblood. Again, that promo code is J-O-D-E-L-L-E to save. And just visit the show notes below and click the link. I think you'll be glad you did. Thank you.